morning. Welcome to church. It may not be what you're used to. It's not what I'm used to from a church point of view. My experience of church growing up was kind of pews and stand up, sit down and boring prayers and all of that kind of stuff. And we try not to be boring. You, you may judge us on that and say we are, but we certainly do our best not to be. Um, great to see anyone from Warrington in here this morning. Any Warringtonians? Is that the right phrase, Warringtonians? It doesn't sound right as I'm saying it. I kind of know it is. Yeah, we've got a few people from Warrington. Anyone from Wigan? Any Wiganers? We've got a, we have quite a few Wiganers. Sounds like there's more Wiganers than Warringtonians. I just can't get that. It doesn't roll out my tongue. Uh, anyone from uh, Manchester? Any Mancunians? There's a couple of Mancunians, I know. Obviously, I understand being from Manchester, you won't want to shout out and make yourself known. I get that. That's not a problem. That's, that's understandable. You'll get then that I'm from the... <laughs> do you know, do you know, he's just doing that. Um, you'll get that I'm from Liverpool. I'm actually, it's a, I'm not quite from Liverpool. I am from Liverpool, from Heighton in Liverpool. Um, and, but we kind of moved away when I was really young. And we moved down south and then through circumstances moved back up. Uh, and we ended up living in, so uh, you, some of you will know that Liverpool can get a bad press. Right, isn't it? It's in the press. Liverpool get a kind of the city. It kind of seems to be the, the the in thing to mock Liverpool and try and put it down. And it's kind of happened for the last thirty years or so. Um, I, so, if in some people's eyes it would be bad to come from Liverpool, well, if it's bad to come from Liverpool, it's worse to come from where I grew up because where I grew up, the people from Liverpool looked down on that place. <laughs> that's how bad it was it was a little town called Prescott on the outskirts of Liverpool kind of in between here and Liverpool that's where I grew up um, and yeah it was, a, it was a kind of rough place and, and the school I went to anyone go to a bad school? Anyone go to, I was chatting with a friend, yeah, I've, there's a hand going up near the front, I was chatting to a friend, and, and me and my boys, my boys go to a good school, they don't think it's a good school, they're 14, so in their eyes, it's a terrible, terrible school, because they're disciplined, and they have to work, and do stuff, and hand the homework in, and stuff like that, and they were kind of going on about how bad their school is, until a friend in the car with us when we were out happened to mention what his school was like, and he was talking about yeah, having barbed wire to keep them in, security guards with guns and this kind of, literally, honestly, I'm like, and I'm going, boys, are you listening to this? Your school is good. You're in a good school. And we all ended up in, uh, in Manchester a couple of weeks ago, because one of the things I remember from school do you remember this? The, the key thing that sticks out from school for me was the last day of term. Was your school the same as mine? Last day of term, you just did nothing, did you? It was get the packs of cards out, play football. It was anything but less. That wasn't just my school, was it? Did anyone else have that in their school? That was kind of mandatory. Last day of school, you get the cards out, you do all that kind of stuff. So in the office last week, and, and I was mentioning last Sunday night how uh, I, I'm going for the dad of the year, husband of the year. Hey, I'm going to go for man of the year this year because my wife went away for a week and left me with five. We've got five kids ranging from six to 17 and I was left with every single one of them now that wouldn't have been too bad because normally I'd just dump it all on a 17 year old and let her deal with it but she was ill so I had to step up to the plate and deal with it so this was this was tough this was really really difficult so the boy 
It's kind of middle of the week and everyone is on holiday. Jeff's on holiday, Tracy's on holiday, Vicky's on holiday. They're all away, jollying it off on the beach, kind of getting the suntan and everything. We're slaving away, me and Paul. And the boys are off school and I said, Paul, we're taking the afternoon off. It's half term. It's the last day we're going to take the afternoon off. And someone had told me, I won't say who, about this great shopping place in Manchester you could go to and you could get some great bargains there. So I'm thinking, this is brilliant. The boys are after brands. Anyone got kids and, and brand is the big thing, isn't it? You know, they've got to have branded stuff and money's tight, five kids, all of that malarkey. So we are headed off to Manchester to go to this place and Cheatham Hill is the name of the place. There's laughs going up already, yeah, yeah. I innocently went there, okay? Let me just get that out. I innocently went there, right? I'm stood outside this shop. It's sunny. We've kind of been for a walk. And, and, and the boys have gone into this shop with one of my friends and with Paul, and they're in the shop. And I'm just casually stood outside on the phone to my wife who's on holiday in London. So I'm on the phone to her. She wasn't on holiday, by the way. I'm just winding her up and keep saying that, but I'm going to keep doing it. Anyway, so I'm on the phone to her. Next thing, I can see all this activity going on. I'm looking around. I'm thinking, there's something happening here. I kind of know this sense of something going on and something happening. And suddenly, all the doors of the shops are being locked. And my boys are in one of these shops. <laughs> I'm thinking, what's going on? What's happening? And then a police van comes round the corner. Anyway, needless to say, we got the boys out and my friend out and Paul out and we headed off home and, and we never talked about it again. <laughs> my, my school was a bit like Cheetah Me. It was more like the school off the, uh, off the Simpsons. What's it called? The, the one, uh, Springfield High, isn't it? That's what my school was like. It was more like that. But kind of branded stuff is, is, is really important and all of that malarkey. But anyone do the hoovering this week? Anyone done that? Anyone done some hoovering this week? Yeah, there's a few hands going up, yeah? Yeah, a couple of people have done that. Anyone Googled anything this week? Anyone Googled anything this week? Yeah, we've all done that. Anyone kind of, you know, put some stuff on a post-it note, things like that? You know, all of those things are great examples of brands that have become verbs. Words that you use for doing stuff. When you Google something, you're using the, the name of a company. When you Hoover, you're actually vacuuming up and you're using the name of the brand. The story I want to talk about today from the Bible, those companies would give their right arm to be as famous as this story. This story, if you think Hoovering, Hoover really nailed it. That's the, the goal. Dyson would give anything for you to say, I'm just going to Dyson the carpet. Because no one does that, do they? They'd give anything for that. That's kind of, that's the peak of brand. And, and you've arrived when you get that. This story is in those echelons, okay? This story has become the name for a situation that arises. This story is, is the phrase that you use when there's an underdog situation. As soon as I say that, some of you probably already guessed what the story is that I'm going to talk about. We're doing a series at the moment, and the series we're doing is about what makes them so special. We're looking at Bible characters over these few weeks, the last couple of weeks and for the next few weeks. And this morning, we, we went through and we prayed about what Bible characters you, could, you should do and we should look at. And there's one Bible character in particular that you couldn't ignore really if you're going to do a study of key important Bible characters, and that's King David. 
He's one of, I mean, he's, I taught, in fact, last Sunday night, I, I, it was given to me to do Isaac. And, and I talked about how I actually dislike Isaac as a character. When I read about him, I struggle with him. There's all kinds of stuff going on that I don't like about him. If I struggle with Isaac, I, I absolutely love the story of King David. Obviously, never met the guy. I'm, I'm not, I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. And he, he was a few thousand years ago. But when you read his story and you read about him and who he was and what kind of a character he was, he was the kind of person that would possibly have ended up at Cheetah Mill and, and gone, oh, no, what have I done? I've ended up in a mess here and then tried to put it right. David ended up in scrapes in his life. His life was far from perfect. He ended up with some key situations that messed up. He faced persecution from his family. His, his, his life was, almost everything you could imagine in a life was in there, was in this man's story. And not only that, right, when you read about King David, it's one of the most interesting stories in the Bible. It's like you can't put it down. It is, it is a great book. If you've not read it for years, let me inspire you to go and read the story about King David. It's spread over a few bits of the Bible. You generally find it in uh, the books of Samuel. It's also uh, in, 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 you get it in Chronicles as well. And the New Testament refers to King David. So he's, he's dotted about all the way through the Bible. He's a key, key character in the Bible. And, and I was praying a lot about what they were sharing. And the go-to story with King David is Goliath, obviously. And, and so it's the last one I want to do because it's the obvious one to go and do. But the more and more I'm praying about it, I, I had to, to really pull this out from this story. But I want to try and pull something out from this story that for anyone who, who is a Christian, you've heard it preached about David before. Hopefully you've not maybe heard it from this angle or heard this side of it or this, this pulled out about King David. One of the key things that made King David was Goliath. What made King David so special? That might sound like a strange thing to say, but one of, you could argue, not quite the first thing, but the first public thing that made David prominent, that really made him as a person and who he was, was Goliath. It was the Goliath story. It was the Goliath situation that made David and Goliath, when I talked about kind of hoovering and Googling and so on, when there's a, a, a situation where there's an underdog, we talk about David and Goliath, don't we? The whole world, not just here in the UK, who, who doing the hoovering, you've never heard of that in America, I don't think, anyway. Certainly not in Germany and countries like that, that's a UK thing. This is global. Everyone all over the world, if you talked about an underdog situation, one of the things they would think about would be David and Goliath. Because it's one of the most famous, and for good, good reason, underdog stories that you could ever, ever hope to read. It is an incredible, incredible story of an underdog. And, and and one of the reasons is because of Goliath. Because of Goliath, he intimidated. He was an intimidating character. He was huge. You know, if you've got Bibles with you, open them up. Let's just have a, a quick look. Just as you're opening them, he intimidated so much that, let me give you a, 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 an example. If you think intimidation doesn't kind of matter, okay, 
Goliath did what someone else did, a world leader recently. Anyone hear about Donald Trump? He did a famous tweet recently, and he tweeted to King, Kim Jong-un. Is that how it's pronounced? Kim Jong-un, King Jong-un, however it's pronounced. He tweeted him, and he put, his tweet went like this. I've got a nuclear button, and my nuclear button's bigger than your nuclear button. That was the tweet. And a lot of people laughed at it. A lot of people laughed at it. He got mocked, widely mocked for it. Now, I don't want to get into the rights or wrongs of what, what he did. It was schoolboy tactics. My dad's bigger than your dad kind of thing. I've got more nuclear weapons than you've got, which, to be frank, they have. They've got more than anyone else in the world. But here's the thing, right? While everyone was laughing, did anyone notice a few weeks later that King Jong-un was wanting to negotiate with him and wanting to get around the table and talk with him? You see, intimidation is powerful. And some of you in here this morning, you're potentially facing situations or you've been going through or you've maybe even got some ongoing situations in your life where you're feeling intimidated. You're feeling like there's a giant, a situation that's so big, it's so huge in your life that you don't know how you can deal with this situation because it is massive. It's huge. And listen, I want to tell you, if you think the situation that you're facing in your life is massive, Goliath was massive. That's why this has become the go-to underdog story because of Goliath and who he was and how big a character and how intimidating he was. He intimidated. He intimidated. He intimidated. Do you know the Bible spends more time describing Goliath's weapons and his armor and all about how big he was than it does describing the battle. Do you realize that? Why? Why did the author, why does the Bible spend so much time? Because this was always going to become, God knew this was going to come, uh, going to become that go-to story for intimidation. And what God's saying is that Goliath was bigger than, bigger than. Think about that phrase for a minute. He was bigger than, bigger than, right? And the reason I'm saying bigger than, the reason I'm going on about bigger than, bigger than, bigger than is because if you're like me, right, I have this great skill and this great knack of taking my problems and my issues and making them bigger than anyone else's. Anyone else able to do that? Yeah. In my head, Right? It's not big-headed, but in my head, right, when I think of the problems that I face in life and I go through them and I, and I think about them, I always have this great knack, call it a skill, call it an art, of making them bigger than anyone else's. No one else in the world, it doesn't matter what you, you could come and tell me about what someone else is going through. In my head, mine is bigger and worse and harder. Anyone know what I'm on about? Anyone been there and done that kind of stuff with your problems? Come on. Some of you might even be doing that now. Goliath was bigger than. He was bigger than. Listen to what the Bible says. 1 Samuel 17. We're going to put the verses up. Verse 4, the beginning of verse 4. It starts off like this. It says, then Goliath, a Philistine champion. So that's intimidating for a start, isn't it? He wasn't just a Philistine. He was a champion. A gladiator. Liverpool are about to face Real Madrid soon in the Champions League final. <laughs> they call them the Galacticos, the gladiators. That's right, isn't it, Jonathan? We're going to face them in the final. It's coming up. It's happening. 
he was a, he was a champion from Gath, from Gath, sorry. And he came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel on his own. Goliath came out. He stood there alone. The Bible says he stood there in front of the entire army, essentially, and just stood there mocking him like this. Come on, then. All of you at once or one at a time. I don't care. I'm here. Come on, let's have you then. That's how he stood there. Every day, not just on one occasion, day after day after day, he went out intimidating him, intimidating him over and over again. It goes on in verse 4 to say this. He was over nine feet tall. That's big. If it had thought on, I probably should have measured it, but I reckon nine feet tall is about as high as the top there. This guy was huge. He was a freak of nature, you could say. I don't mean that in a nasty way, although he's not a nice guy, is he? Let's be honest about it. I don't think anyone's going to have any arguments about me calling him a freak. I know we live in a PC world, but hey, I think I'm, I'm safe on that one there. A couple of people you're safe to mock, aren't they? Hitler, people like that, you know what I mean? Goliath, they're all fine. You can get on with them. <laughs> he wasn't just big. He was bigger than so when you're thinking that your situation is bigger than, it's unsolvable. No one else has ever faced a situation like this. This is a great story to read, isn't it? Because this is bigger than. He was bigger than. goes on in verse 5. Listen to this. It says, he wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. That's about nine stone. That's a kind of petite woman. That's, how, that's a, that kind of weight. Nine stone. Nine stone. Or Jeff's wallet. That's heavy. <laughs> he also wore bronze leg armor. And he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. What the heck is with all the bronze what he's got, have you noticed? So he's got a bronze helmet, bronze coat, bronze leg armor, bronze javelin. Well, it was the Bronze Age. It was actually the Bronze Age. It was actually the Bronze Age, getting towards the end of the Bronze Age. So bronze was the kind of, it was the cool thing to wear. It was like having the latest iPad or the latest this or the latest car or whatever. Bronze was the thing, okay? But it's significant that the Bible's emphasizing all the bronze. It's emphasizing it and going on about it. You know, medics, any medics, I know we've got a couple of medics in the church. The symbol for medicine is a bronze snake. And again, it comes from the Bible. The, the symbol for medicine is a bronze snake. It comes from the Bible. When a bronze serpent was lifted up, the, the, the people would look at it and they would be healed. Okay? Bronze. And the, the significance of bronze in the Bible is, think about bronze, what it is. Often bronze is compared to gold. In the Bible, in, in the inner sanctuary, everything was gold. If you went into the pure bit of, 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 of a, a temple in the Bible, or, or an, uh, I'm being loose because I'm, I know we've got people who, in, who don't know the Bible or whatever, but the sanctuary, the, the inner sanctuary, you would see gold. On the outer edge, though, you would see bronze. And because bronze was mixed, gold, if you know anything about metals, gold is an element. 
bronze is an alloy. And what that means is you can take bronze and you can split it up into its component parts. Bronze is made of about three different metals. I should have checked which ones, but it's made of about three different metals that are all uh, melted together to make bronze. Are we with me so far? Gold isn't. You can't, gold isn't made. It is an element. Gold is used to make other things, but it isn't made. It isn't manufactured. It, it is an element. You can't split it up. It's pure. It's pure. But bronze isn't. Bronze is manufactured. It's made, and it's made up. It's an alloy. It's mixed. Gold is pure. Gold is shiny. We all know that, don't we? Gold is shiny. Bronze is dull. Gold is clean and real. Bronze is counterfeit. Bronze is when you want something cheap to look a little bit sparkly, but maybe you can't afford gold or it's not in the budget. Bronze is what you'd go for. And in the Bible, gold is often thought of as purity, whereas bronze is thought of as sin. And so the significance of all the bronze, what the Bible's telling us here is that this guy is not only the enemy, he's not only the enemy, but think about it. Bronze is, is a counterfeit for gold in many ways. Goliath was a counterfeit. He appeared to be a giant. He had the look of it. Yeah, hey, he was nine feet tall. I grant you, he looked like a giant. He could walk into the room and everyone would go, wow, he's a giant. Yeah, he had all of that. But I'm telling you now, he was counterfeit. He was a counterfeit giant. And I want to tell you, the giants that you're facing in your life, I want to give you a word direct from God this morning. The situations that you're facing in your life at the moment, that you're going, this is a giant. It's bigger than anything else anyone has ever faced. It's, it's undefeatable. It can't be dealt with. It can't be sorted out. This can't be fixed. That is a counterfeit. It is not true. It is a lie. It is a lie. Do you realize it's a lie. Listen to it. Listen to it. In verse 8 it says this, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Listen to what he said. He said this, he said, why are you all coming out to fight? It says he called. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. He didn't say, why aren't you coming out to fight. He said, why are you coming out to fight? That's, in essence, even more intimidating. Because what he's saying is, you're going to get beat. Why are you even bothering? This is already won. You are already beaten. You have no hope. I am bigger than you. I will beat you. I will destroy you. But it was a lie. It was counterfeit. It was intimidation. And it was fake. Listen to what he went on to say. He went on to say this to intimidate them even more. Think about it. He didn't say, why aren't you coming out to fight? He wasn't trying to goad them to come out to fight. If you think, kind of think, well, how was that fake? Because he didn't want them to come out to fight. It was all about intimidation. All about barking and shouting the loudest to win the battle that didn't ever even have to be won in the first place. Because he was a liar, because he was fake, because he was all about the intimidation and there was no real substance to him, just like the problems that you are facing, I promise you this. He said, I am the Philistine champion, but you are 
the servants of Saul. I'm the Philistine champion, but you're servants. I'm a champion, you're a servant. He's intimidating. He's putting down. He's putting down again and again and again. He goes on to say this, choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, then you will be our slaves. Again, intimidation. He didn't want them to come out and fight. It may sound like he did. He didn't. He didn't want them to come out and fight. To something deep down, he was always going to be beaten. I defy the armies of Israel today. More threats. Send me a man. Send me a man who will fight me. You know, some of you, you're being told, you're only this. You're only that. You're nothing. You're not anything. You're just a slave. I'm the champion. You're just this. I'm that. I'm the important one here, not you. You're insignificant. I'm important. I matter here. You don't matter. It could be a situation. It could be a work person. It could be someone, whatever it is. You're being told over and over again, you don't matter. You don't matter. You're not significant. That's what Goliath did. That's what Goliath did. It's the enemy. And listen to the effect it had. Verse 11 says this, when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. You know, two things about this. Number one, it did exactly what it was meant to do. It stopped the battle before it was even started. It absolutely debilitated Saul and his entire army so he couldn't even come out and fight if he wanted to. The battle was won before it even started. Goliath didn't even need to fight. That's exactly what the enemy wants to do. He wants to incapacitate you. He wants to stop you from doing anything. He wants you to sit there passive saying, well, I'm I'm defeated. I can't do anything. So why even bother? Why even bother? Not even able to fight. But the second thing that really strikes me about this, this story is Saul. Because Saul is no different to his people. Saul is described as being exactly the same as his people, terrified and petrified and unable to fight. He's the king. The king. He's the leader. He's the leader. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of Israel. And he stood there at the back, at the back of the battle with all his army there. Watching. Now, fair enough, if he's got someone in his ranks who's who's tall, I'll go out and do it. I'll go out and do it. But for day upon day upon day, weeks upon weeks, Saul sits there and watches his men cower while he sits there and does nothing. He does nothing. He's the worst example of a leader that you could ever hope to imagine. He sits back and he does nothing. Stands by watching his men, feared And he does nothing. Until eventually a young boy comes along. A boy. A boy. Eventually comes along and says, I'll fight him. I'll fight him. This isn't right. How can it be that uh, 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 the entire army of God's people can stand by, defeated before they've even thrown a a spear or, or raised a punch or anything? How can we all stand by defeated? This isn't right. This is wrong. Somebody, somebody somewhere's got to do something. It should have been Saul. It should have been Saul. But he showed himself that he wasn't a leader. 
But you know, a true leader will stand up. And you know the mark of a true leader? They do something. They do something. They do something. They see the situation. And you know, you could forgive Saul for maybe a day or two being paralyzed. But this went on day upon day upon day upon day upon week upon month. Until a boy comes along. And any of us can be paralyzed with fear and, and the situation and overwhelmed. This problem is bigger than I, than I could ever face. How can I face this? How can I do this? How can I come against this force? It's bigger than anything else. Bigger than anyone else has ever faced. It's too big for me. I can't do it. But faith. Faith is an action. It's an action. It's a bold action. It hears. Even when the situation that it sees looks impossible. It doesn't walk by what it sees. Faith hears. It listens to God. It listens to God. To the voice of God. To the whisper even of God. To what he said. To what he's reminding you of. To his voice. To the voice of faith. To the true source of faith. It listens. It hears God. And it acts. Just say the word Lord. Tell me what to do, and I'm there, and I'll do it. Just say the word. Just say the word. Saul wasn't a leader. He failed as a leader, not because of his fear, not because he was scared. Anyone can be scared. I reckon David was probably scared. But the thing is, is his motivation is, is, is this, this thing that welled up with him that knew something had to be done was greater than his fear. His responsibility of what he knew, that something had to be done. I've got to do something here. It was so loud, that voice. That voice was so loud, not in volume. Not in volume, but in truth. That it overcame the fear. It overcame the fear. And what made David great wasn't whether he was scared or not. wasn't about his bravery or anything like that. But that he'd spent time with God. He knew his God. So in that moment, see, he wasn't even meant to be on the battlefield, the story tells us. He'd only gone there because his dad had sent him to send his brothers, his older brothers who were in the battle, some sandwiches to, to go and give him provisions. He wasn't there as a soldier. He was there just out of circumstance. He just happened to be in the situation. But when he turned up, when he arrived in that situation, he, he, he essentially didn't even need time to think because he knew. Because he knew. And here's the thing that Saul couldn't see. And essentially what makes all of these Bible characters great it's not them. It's not me. It's not you. It's not any of those things. It's what God does through and in you. You see, Goliath was a gift to David. Didn't seem like it at the time. 
Didn't seem like it to the Israelite army. But think about this story in the whole context. Goliath was a gift to David. He was a gift from God to David because it was an opportunity for David to respond and to act and to do the right thing. And it set David on a a pedestal, if you like. It set David up. It made him famous. He was, from that point on, David was famous. He was already famous in God's eyes before that because God had already anointed him secretly. But this was essentially his public anointing. This was the moment when God presented him to the world stage and God knowing how to do it, he presented him in in one of the most amazing, incredible acts of all time that's still talked about to this day, that's become the, 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 the hoovering. It's the word for hoovering. It's the word for an underdog situation. Oh, David, you hear it with football matches and everything. David and Goliath situation. Like when Liverpool faced Man United. Man United have got no hope. There is a hope, Jeff. There is a hope. <laughs> but it, it, it wasn't just that. Maybe is Adam around somewhere? Adam, come on up. It wasn't just that that made David great. You see, if it was just great actions and just that he was a mighty warrior and just that he went out and, and fought great battles. And, and it says from that moment on, they used to say of Saul, that Saul fought, thought, fights his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. But if it was just those great mighty acts, and, and David did many mighty acts through his life, It wasn't just that, though, that made him great, you see. Because what happened with David was he had love. He had love. He loved God. And he loved his people. He loved his men. And he had some mighty men. There's a a story in there that talks about a time when he he was being chased down. And later on, eventually, you end up in a situation where Saul just hates him. This king that was so grateful to him for defeating Goliath and basically got Saul off the hook. Suddenly, as you see in these situations, we see it, don't we? You go and do, and you help someone out, and and you're a great help to them. And then suddenly, in the next season, they hate you for it. They suddenly hate you. Tell them them I'll I'll phone them back later, whoever that is. I'll, I'll give them a ring later. But David, you see, it wasn't just his mighty acts. It was the love and the honor and the respect that he gained from his people because he cared for them and he loved them and he, he led from the front. He led by example. There's a famous story. He's been chased down by Saul and, and Saul wants to kill him. And, and there's a couple of stories. One of them in particular, it, it, David's thirsty. And he's so, so thirsty. And he says, I, I would give anything just for a glass of, uh, of water from, from the, I'm paraphrasing it, from this special well. That I remember and he's, he's trapped in this cave and, and his mighty men overhear this, three of his mighty men, and, and they go and they break through the Philistine ranks and, and Saul's right, and they go and they get him a glass of water and they bring it back to him. They bring him this water back to him. And David can't believe it. He didn't say it for for them to go and do it they just happen to overhear it but you know what he does with the water he said I I can't drink this so men have risked their lives to go and get this how can I drink this and he poured it out as an offering to God 
And to some, that, that, would, be, that would be awful. Well, well, hold on, these guys have gone and, and they've done that out of love for you to go and bring you this glass of water. And what, you're pouring it out on the ground. But you see, they understood why he did it. You see, when there's love and there's honor and there's respect, you know, a, a harsh word can be said when you've earned that respect with that person because they know your heart. They know who you are. And you're able to, to say that thing to them, to do that thing that they understand because they know you. They know you. He had such utmost respect for God that even when God brought his enemy now, Saul, into his hands, and David stood there with a, with a, a, a knife, he's, and Saul doesn't even know he's there, he's able to kill him. And he doesn't. His sworn enemy, who's, who's attempted to kill him and chased him down, he doesn't, doesn't kill him. He spurs his life because he's the king, because he's God's anointed man. Even though that anointing may have passed, David knew this is not my place to do this. And you know, it's a, a, another incredible story about David because what happens is he doesn't, he spurs his life and Saul realizes. And from that moment on, he retreats and he leaves David alone. He leaves him alone. He leaves him alone. And David knew God. He knew him and he knew what to do. And he knew grace, and he knew mercy, and he knew love. And it gained him honor and respect of his people. And he went on and became one of the greatest kings. That, that is what made David so great, such a great and a amazing king. Not so much who he was, through him the opportunities he gave him, the things that God taught him, the things that God showed him, that he knew he had to take, knowing when a thing needs to be done, that he had to do it, no matter what anyone might say, no matter what anyone might think, knowing when the right thing had to be done, I'll do it, and he did it, and that love and that honour that he had for his people. Over to you, Adam. Thank you very much, guys.